0: Thank you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.
1: You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pause and ask God's help in discerning his word this morning. Father, we pray for your supernatural guidance upon the words that are spoken and heard. We pray that we would see ourselves in this parable that you told that we would clearly see the lostness of our own condition outside of Jesus Christ and the hopelessness that we all have outside of the robe of Christ's righteousness around us. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to discern and change us this morning, cause us to leave this place being renewed in our faith and in our spirits. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the parable... It's, known as the parable of the prodigal son is, as we've said before, you know, we'll talk about it as we kind of go along, is unfortunately named. Um, but we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. It is, in fact, a superlative parable. I think that if I were given the choice and someone were to say to me, you can only have one parable that Jesus ever spoke, that uh, somehow the rest of them are lost, Then no question about it. This would be the one parable that we should cling to. It is a uh, unfortunately it is a very much misunderstood and underappreciated parable. Uh, We tend to focus uh, in the teaching of the parable of God's lovingness, of His um, patience, of His eagerness for the younger son to return, and His celebration in the fact that once he was dead and now he's alive. We tend to to focus on that to the exclusion of what I believe to be the central point of the parable, and that is not to do with the younger son, but the elder son. Uh, Jesus is telling this parable, of course, in the context of the Pharisees, those who were self-righteous, saying among themselves, He accepts sinners and receives tax collectors, and Jesus tells these three parables in response to that, And of course, the Pharisees find themselves illustrated in the parable in the elder son, which we'll get to next time. So um, Jesus himself starts the parable by saying there was a man who had two sons. So the parable is not the parable of the prodigal son, but in many ways, both sons are very much prodigal or wasteful. Um, So again, the elder son, I believe we're going to see that he's the, the climax of the story. Both sons are lost. Both sons disrespect their fathers. Their father, they do this in different ways. The younger son will disrespect his father uh, by boldly asking for what's coming to him and then taking that and leaving. The elder son will disrespect his father in some other ways, but they both have the same underlying desire, and that is that both of them want their father's goods but not their father himself. They will show it in different ways. The younger son, again, will be bold in his desire for the father's goods without the father. The elder son is a little bit more subtle. He will attempt to get what he wants by just gritting his teeth and uh, obeying and suffering through the years until his father passes. But his goal is likewise to get his father's stuff without his father. We'll see that it's clearly as we go along. They're both lost. The younger son is lost in his disobedience. The older son is lost in his obedience. The younger son is lost in his distance from the father. The the elder son is lost in his proximity to the father. But both of them are equally disrespectful and equally lost. And of course, at the end of the parable, the only one of the two sons Um, has a relationship with the father that is resolved. The younger son's relationship is resolved. Jesus leaves the parable with the elder son's relationship being unresolved. So all of that is just to kind of get us into the right frame of mind as we talk about this. Remember the context of this parable is the context that we saw back in verse 1, that the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and complaining among themselves, that Jesus receives tax collectors and he eats with sinners. And Jesus tells these three parables in that context. The point of all three parables, or at least one of the points of all three parables, is God's joy in receiving repentant sinners. God's joy as people repent, as people turn from their sin, and his anxiousness and eagerness to receive them back. So, we understand the parable through that framework. Let's get started with verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, Scripture, as we've said before, Scripture has one meaning. And whatever the meaning of Scripture is, that's what it meant to the people who originally received it. In other words, Scripture doesn't mean something different to us today than what it meant to those who received it originally. Um, It's not as though the meaning changes or is amended in any way. Sometimes prophecy doesn't have fulfillment of prophecy until in the future, but the meaning of Scripture is always what it meant to those who received it. And so those who receive Scripture always receive it in the same way we receive it, which is through a cultural lens. We all have cultural and societal expectations and norms and things that we consider to be Um, just the way life is, and we don't even think about it, and we view Scripture, we can't help it. We must view Scripture, just like everything else, through the lens of our culture. However, there are certain things in which the culture of Jesus' day, in which these people received the, the Word of God, had different aspects to it that caused them to understand stories differently, parables differently, And so what Scripture means to us can't be different than what it meant to them. And so therefore, to understand Scripture properly, we must always attempt to put ourselves in the mind frame of the culture of those who received it. For some passages of Scripture, that has very little impact. The differences in culture between our day and Jesus' day or the Old Testament days, sometimes that has very little impact. This particular parable, there are a number of aspects of the parable that are impacted by our cultural differences today. So for this parable, we must endeavor to put ourselves in the framework of the original hearers, And so there are a few things that we must work through in order to do that. And one of them is that we must understand, first of all, that as the younger son comes to ask for the, his share of the father's property, we can understand this easily today. He's, he's, it's almost as though he's saying... Father, I wish you were dead because what I really want from you, I can't get while you're still alive. You're, you're more valuable to me dead than alive. So I really wish you would die, but because you're not close to death, I'm going to ask for what I would get after your death because that's really the treasure of my heart. That's really what I want. So the rudeness, of course, that comes through loud and clear, even in our culture, but in Jesus' day, this would have been staggeringly rude and staggeringly disrespectful. Jesus lived in what we sometimes call today an honor-shame culture, and we can understand that. There are still honor-shame cultures today, particularly Eastern cultures tend to be honor-shame culture. In honor-shame cultures, one thing that we must understand, as Westerners, we value individuality, We value individual accomplishment. We value uniqueness. Honor-shame cultures tend to value conformity to social social norms, conformity to cultural expectations. So in an honor-shame culture, we can understand the idea of honor and shame, which we have in our culture as well. But in this type of culture, we need to take our understanding of honor and shame and just put it on steroids, just jack it up to where it is far, far more prominent in the culture than it is in ours. The idea of being shamed among one's neighbors, among one's village, the idea of being shamed was essentially the worst thing that could happen to a person. Add to that the fact that this culture was a highly patristic culture. This was a culture that the most valuable person in the culture was the male head of household. The father figure in the house. That was the most valuable, the most important person in that society. And so to shame the father, there was literally nothing worse that could have been done than to shame a father. And in this way, this shame is extreme to say the least, because again, what the son is saying is what I really like and want about you. The fact that you're still living is kind of standing in the way of getting that. And so give me what I really want, regardless of the shame that you may suffer from it. So he likes the father, he loves the father, so to speak, for the father's possessions. And we can relate to that. Probably most of us have experienced Some type of friendship in which maybe we extended friendship to someone or someone extended friendship to us based on some sort of possession. I remember um, back in high school, when, when I went through high school, we had junior high and high school. And in junior high, there was this one kid that was just not particularly popular. Nobody really liked him that much. He was sort of an outsider, weird, that kind of thing. He gets to high school, turns sixteen, and his dad buys him a—I don't know—I don't remember what year it was, but it was a Corvette Stingray convertible. And all of a sudden, he was quite popular, and found himself with ladies to go out with, and all. This. They liked him for his possession. Okay, so we can relate to that. This is the son's attitude towards the father. Um, however, the father shows true, genuine love to the son, but his love is rejected. So let's think. As we're thinking through the story, let's think of how it feels to have our love rejected. I would endeavor to say that that there may be no greater pain than the pain of having love that we extend towards others to be rejected. Now, let's think about our typical reaction when our love for others is rejected. Our reaction, I think, tends to be anger, bitterness, um, a withdrawal of that love, or at least try to withdraw the love, a sort of protecting of ourselves when our love is rejected, then oftentimes, particularly in our society, the wisdom of the day is you need to sort of build these walls. You need to protect yourself against that sort of thing happening again. That tends to be our attitude, our reaction towards love that's rejected by others. So we'll Observe the Father's love as his love is rejected. So, Jesus begins the story. There was this man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, what we want to think about is Jesus' hearers. At this point in the story, Jesus' hearers are quite angry. Because again, this is the most disrespectful, the most dishonorable thing that could happen in this culture. And so Jesus' hearers among them are the Pharisees and the scribes. They're hearing this. And right now, Jesus has their blood up. They're, they're sort of raging because they have heard of this um, unspeakable dishonor that is happening. So they're angry. All right. Um, and so it says that the father then divided his property between them. So again, this was a different culture. And in this culture... There were not the financial institutions that we enjoy today. There weren't the uh, investment banks and the bonds and the stocks and all different ways to sort of have money invested and have wealth um, secured. There weren't all those, those ways. There were coins. We know that there were search, uh, uh, coins that were circulated that were valuable. Jesus was, was sold for 30 pieces of silver, for example. But by and large, people who had means did not keep their wealth in coins because of the obvious that the coin doesn't do anything. It doesn't grow. It doesn't work for you at all. And so if you if you're a person of means, you wouldn't have your wealth in coins. That would be silly. If you're a person of means in Jesus's day, you would have your wealth where? in two places, land and livestock, land and livestock, because that's what grew. That's what worked for you. So this father would have had his wealth almost exclusively in land and livestock. And so imagine now as the son asks for his share of this, what he's asking for is is basically his share of land and his share of flocks or herds, not something that's easily sort of divided up. Um, It would have to be sold. And the profits then given to the son, in order for the father to divide the property. so imagine the disruption that occurs in the life of this family. I picture a farm, some type of farm or or uh, some type of situation in that in which you know the land is is developed to somewhat, to some extent to work for the farm, maybe fenced off, maybe there's barns built on part of it. And this incredible problem of how do you divide this up and how do you sell it? Certainly, what would remain would be injured, would be damaged by the loss of what would probably be about a third of that. Um, The disruption in the family would be tremendous. In fact, the word that Luke uses for property is the word bios. Now, you Greek scholars this morning, what what does bios mean? Trans, what's that? Life. Yes, transliterated B-I-O-S, biology, life. Now there's a more specific, more technical Greek word for property, but Luke doesn't use that. He uses the word for life because literally this is this family's life. The land probably has been in the family for generations and generations. You remember. The attachment to the land that the Israelite people, or in fact all agrarian people, all agrarian people have an attachment to the land that is hard for non-agrarians to understand. The attachment to to the land was it was their life. It was their life, not just their livelihood and their place to live. It they belonged to the land and the land belonged to them. And there's this mutual. Relationship. Remember, as all the tribes of Israel got their allotments of land, this land has probably been passed down for generation and generation and generation. So to sell part of that off would be a tremendous disruption. The livestock, the flocks, to sell part of those off, the remaining flock would suffer because part of it would have to be sold off. In fact, some commentators have said that this was not only improper for the, for the father to divide the land, and to divide the, the property and sell it, it was not only improper, but it was also possibly illegal. That it just was not legally allowed to be done for a, a father to give a son his inheritance before he died. So there was actually a loophole that, um, that in dire circumstances you could work around, and the loophole was this. A father could give part of his wealth to one of his sons before he died, And that land and those flocks could be sold, but the possession wouldn't change hands until after the father died. So in other words, it was just like buying uh, a future, right? We sort of do this today in our economy. We can buy futures on commodities. What that means is you can buy a certain commodity that you don't get for a certain time in the future. And the idea is you pay a lower price for it now because you're willing to wait when that commodity will probably be more valuable. So the same sort of thing is that the father could have sold off land and flocks. The buyer wouldn't have actually had possession of them until the father died. So the buyer would pay a drastically reduced price because he's willing to wait 15 or 20 or 25 years for the father to die before he takes possession. If that is the case, then imagine the scenario in this family. Now they have lands that they still work that aren't theirs. They have flocks that they still care for that aren't theirs. Imagine the disruption that the father is willing to endure in order to divide the property up. Literally. That's why I think Luke uses the word life. Give me my share of your life. And so the father divided his life up. Again, extremely disgraceful because this is not something that could have been done privately. The father couldn't have just said, okay, let's just Go off and we'll sort this out. This was a very public affair and this was very much publicly disgraceful. The entire village would have known about this. And as the father is shamed, remember this is a communal culture. Community means something very much different in this culture than it does in our culture. In this culture, there was no such thing as shaming a father without shaming also the whole village. So by doing this, the son is not only shaming the father, but the entire village would be up in arms over this. They would consider this a disgrace, not only to the father, but to all of them as well. Um, This is a public, publicly disgraceful thing. The village would expect that when such a son came to the father to ask of this, they would expect that the father would, at the very least, throw him out of the family. But perhaps even give him a beating... He could even interpret the Old Testament laws to mean that this was grounds for stoning. And certainly if the father didn't give the son a beating, he could expect that the villagers would because they have endured essentially the same shame. But notice what the father does, even though it is an incredible disruption to his life. He facilitates the son's disobedience. He not only allows it, but the father goes to great extents to enable the son to do what he wants to do, to take the money and go. Remember, God, the the father is a picture of God here. And so in a similar way, God also will let us pursue the desires of our heart. And sometimes he will even cause situations in our life to come about that make it possible for us to choose disobedience as the son does here so think now what it, what Jesus's heroes are thinking at this point they are not only there are they angry they are um, extraordinarily irate they're agitated to hear of such a son as this um, so he divided the, uh, the the father divided up the property verse 13. Not many days later, so it didn't take long, we see the son's true heart. Not many days later, um, lost my place. Not many days later, the son gathered together all he had and took a journey into a far country. So the son's true intentions don't stay hidden very long. Just a few days pass. He gathers up what he has and he doesn't just leave, he goes to a far country, Jesus says. It's not good enough just to get to the neighboring country. It's not good enough to maybe go over to the next, next neighboring tribe's allotment of land. He goes to a far country. We would understand that to mean a Gentile country. In other words, he wants to get as far away from the Father as he can. And that's a picture of lost sinners, isn't it? Lost sinners, we, we like God's goodness. We like God's blessings, and we'll take those. But we want nothing of God. In fact, we want to get as far from him as we can. We see that all around us. Um, Pretty much that's uh, you think of undergraduate college. That's pretty much what's going on there is people getting as far away from God as they possibly can. Um, So uh, as he leaves, some commentators have said that as the son gathered all his and took a journey to a far country, some commentators have said that the father would have Uh, if not the father, then certainly the village would have uh, put on a funeral for him. That they would have had a public funeral. Because this son is now, what? He's now dead to us. And so we're going to bury him. Some commentators believe that he would actually literally have had this funeral as he left. So again, a picture of the sinner's heart. Verse 14 now. I'm sorry. He gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. There's where we get the word prodigal. Prodigal means wasteful, um, uh, spendthrift, spending everything you've got. He squandered his property in reckless living. Verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So God, as pictured by the Father, has first allowed the Son to choose sin, He even facilitates the choosing of sin. The son takes uh, the money. He goes and squanders it in reckless living. Later on, the elder brother is going to say that he spent it on prostitutes and all kinds of things. But now it seems as though God even goes one step further. Maybe he even kind of puts his thumb on the scale. Because now God brings about this severe famine. The, The younger son's in trouble. He's out of money now, out of friends. But he might would have been okay without the famine. So you see how even in that scenario, God is pursuing the younger son to such a degree that he will bring about a famine that affects certainly not only this younger son, but everybody living in that area. He'll bring about this severe famine in order to bring the younger son to his senses. We have no concept of what a severe famine would be like. We have no concept about what a famine would be like. We have no concept of um, what it's like to go to the grocery store and not see our favorite brand of foods on the shelf. So we can't relate to this. But a severe famine in the land would be, well, just to say the least, it would be a life and death situation. (coughs) Literally, the difference between living and dying. So the hearers now are listening to the story. And I sense that they're going to, they're going to feel a little bit of relief coming on now. Why are they going to be relieved? Because he's getting what he's deserved. Yes. This disgraceful little imp of a younger son, God is on the throne. And God is seeing to it that he gets what's coming to him. You see, you disrespect your father, this is what happens. You see? So they're beginning, I think, to sense a little bit of relief in the story. And they see where, or they think they see where Jesus is going with this. But then verse 15, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. So think of now how far the younger son has fallen. He was, um, literally the word hired himself out is the word attached himself to or glued himself to. So think how far he's fallen. He was attached to a wealthy father who had servants and hired hands and a large uh, accumulation of wealth. He was attached to him by birthright. Now he's lost everything and he attaches himself to a Gentile. Not only a Gentile, but a Gentile that seems to care nothing for him because he's, he's not paying him anything. He says "I uh, sent him into the field and he was longing to be fed with what the pigs eat. So, so the, the man's not paying him. Perhaps he said, "You know, take, go take care of my kid, my, my, my kids, <laughs> my, my pigs. Same thing. I, I, go take care of my pigs. Of <laughs> yeah, brilliant slip. Go take care of my pigs, and and maybe you can eat some of what they're eating, or maybe I'll see what I can find some scraps left over for you, something like that. <laughs> and by sending him to the pigs, he certainly cares nothing for him because he knows that he's a Jew, and he knows what a pig means." to an ancient Orthodox Jew. It's the most disgusting thing possible. Something else that's hard for us to really relate to is, is the level of, of disgust Jesus' hearers would have heard now. They're feeling good about the story. They they're, are liking what they hear. This younger son's getting what he deserved. But wow, to feed the pigs, I don't know, that's, that's pretty tough. That's, that's a harsh punishment, God. Because... There was nothing more disgusting to the ancient Orthodox Jew than pigs. I just recently read a book called um, Son of Hamas by um, Mosab Hassan Youssef. I think, I think I got it right. Mosab Hassan Youssef. Uh, Mosab Hassan Youssef is the elder son of Sheikh Hassan Youssef. Sheikh Hassan Youssef was one of the seven men who founded Hamas. So, as the eldest son, of one of the founders of Hamas, Mosab was on a path to Hamas leadership. And even in his young days, was, uh, uh, the story goes on, he was arrested, I think about 10 or 11 or 12 as a young kid. He was first arrested for throwing rocks. You've seen on TV, you know, the Palestinians. Sorry, I didn't mention that. He's a Palestinian. But uh, you've seen on the TV, the Palestinians throwing rocks at the Israelis. You know, so he was arrested for throwing rocks at an Israeli tank. Um, and he was arrested by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. Um, so he's arrested and put into an Israeli jail. He's, he's 11, 12 years old now. And he began to experience horrendous treatment at the hands of the Israelis, torture and um, horrendous treatment at their hands. But what he began to see was that um, as bad as the Israelis were to him, he began to see that the Palestinians were worse to each other that the things that they did to each other in prison were far worse than what the Israelis were doing to them. Uh, not to himself, because he was the son of the Sheik. He was the son of Hamas, so he was sort of exempt from that, but he saw Palestinians doing horrible things to other Palestinians. So he began to soften um, to the Israelis. He still hated the Israelis, but then he was recruited by the Israeli secret police called the Shinbet. They recruited him as the son of the leader of Hamas to be a spy for them. He agrees to do this and he's going to, uh, at first he thinks that he's going to use this to kill more Israelis, but, uh, but he begins to soften to, because they treat him like a human being. They treat him with kindness and they treat him with respect. So he begins to soften to the Israelis. Anyway, goes on. He serves as a spy for them for about 10 years. During that time, he is an integral part of stopping dozens of suicide bombers um, he's part of, uh, he's responsible for arresting dozens of Hamas leaders, including his father. Um, so anyway, the story, as the story goes, he eventually is converted to Christianity. But I tell all that, all that is sort of beside the point. The reason I say all that is because in the book, one of the operations that they have Yusef do is he and some others are going to secretly, without the without the knowledge of the IDF, they're going to break into an Israeli prison. And as he's doing, he's going, he describes how he's uh, navigating all these barriers and obstacles and guards and everything. And everything's going well until he reaches the guard pigs. And that's probably the first time you've ever heard those two words used together like that, the guard pigs. But the IDF uses guard pigs. And think about it, it kind of makes sense. Number one, there are a few things as vicious as a pig. Pigs pretty vicious. Number two, they're pretty intelligent and easily trainable. Number three, to a modern-day Muslim, a pig was like it was to an ancient Jew. Nothing more disgusting. So these guard pigs are what they used to guard these Israeli prisons, and the Muslim prisoners will have nothing to do with them. Sort of a, a little story to help us maybe get our arms around what it meant for this young man to be sent into the field to feed the pigs. Not only feed the pigs, but he's now so hungry that he longs to eat what the pigs are eating. When I was a kid, my grandparents, uh, on their farm, we had pigs. And it was my job to feed the pigs, or we didn't call it feeding the pigs, we called it slopping the pigs. And what we did, we had literally a five-gallon bucket, just like any old regular five-gallon bucket, in the kitchen. And everything that wasn't plastic or aluminum foil went into that bucket, everything. Peelings, uh, corn cobs, cooking grease, uh, paper wrappers. If it wasn't plastic or aluminum foil, it went into the bucket. And it was my job every day to take this big bucket. I was probably eight, nine years old. Imagine. eight-year-old carrying a big five-gallon bucket full of slop to the brim. It was my job to carry this to the pigs every morning. And I remember fighting the gag reflex because it was just so disgusting what was, what was in that thing. And it would slosh on me and everything. But I would, you would take it, and the pigs had a trough. And I would have to lift the bucket over the, the fence and pour it into the trough. Right, And one thing was for sure. Whatever exited the bucket, you weren't getting back. Because the the pigs, of course, they they didn't wait for the bucket to be politely emptied. And, oh, may we eat now? They were in there, and half of the bucket went on the back of their heads and in their ears and everything. And once it was out of the bucket, you were not reaching back in that trough. Because they they are mean animals, and you would lose a finger if you stuck a hand in them. So in my mind, I picture this young man fighting with the pigs to get some of their food. He's so hungry that he's no longer is he disgusted by what they're eating, but he's willing to fight them to get it. He has sunk as low as he can go. He has reached the bottom. Jesus says, hearers are sort of rah-rah. Yes, you see. The lesson, never disrespect your father. The lesson, never disobey God. Because this is what happens to those who do that. So, Jesus has, of course, um, a surprise coming for them. So, verse 16. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So there we see another picture of sin. Sin will deceive us and take us to the very bottom and when it gets us to the bottom it will leave us there with uh, no hesitation. No one would give him anything. So Jesus' hearers again I think are on board. They're agreeing with Jesus. I can even see some heads nodding I think. But here comes Jesus with the first surprise of the story. Verse 17 But when he came to himself Now in this the parable of the prodigal son we see the Bible's most complete picture of repentance. Repentance involves three necessary things. It involves the emotions, it involves the mind, the intellect, and it involves the will. All three of those things must be involved for true repentance to occur. So we see the first thing is that he comes to himself, and that's the first step for any repentant sinner. Any repentant sinner must realize, they must come to the place where their mind grasps the hopelessness of their situation. He's going to die. His his plan is not working. You know, we always make these plans. He's made a plan. His plan was I'll go attach myself to this guy uh, and I'll work myself out of this. We always make a plan, right? I'll I'll, I'll go to school. I'll get a better job. I'll buckle down. I'll work hard. I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll get myself out of this mess. He's made a plan, but his plan is not working. And now he comes to his senses and he realizes, I am going to die. And having come to his senses, again, that's the first step of repentance, a realization of the hopelessness of our path. Without the Holy Spirit, we don't come to that realization. Without the Holy Spirit, we just keep on telling lies to ourselves. You know, I I just had a bad string, a bad luck. My luck's going to change. If I just work a little bit harder, if I just get one break, it's all going to change for me. Let me go buy a lotto ticket, whatever it may be. The Holy Spirit has to work in our hearts for us to even come to that realization. I am hopeless. So the first step, he came to himself. And he said, uh, and of course in this we're going to see also his emotions. That's also a necessary part of repentance. Uh, we must be emotionally broken over our sinfulness. It must grieve us. Uh, not only do we recognize the sinfulness that, w- that is our life, but it saddens us and it grieves us and it hurts us and it aches us in our hearts. So we see this also, the emotional part. Um, he came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So let's, for just a moment, let's differentiate between hired servants and servants. Later on, it's a servant that's going to come to the elder son. But here, the younger son says, how many of my hired servants? A hired servant or a hired worker was a day worker. They were just hired if the, the, the owner of the farm had need that day. He would just go into the village and there would be a place where they would gather and he would hire workers for the day and pay them for the day. There was no ongoing relationship. Remember the parable in Matthew of the the man that goes out, the owner of the vineyard, and all throughout the day he hires day workers all day long. And then at the end of the day, he pays them what? What he wants to pay them. That was the relationship between a hired worker and a servant. They, They didn't live with them. They weren't fed by them. They weren't housed or closed. There was no ongoing employment. It was, I need somebody today. Here's somebody I'll pay you to come work for me today. No skill, no uh, no trade that they could bring, no skilled labor. It was just labor for the day. Now, the wages that they would be paid, as you can imagine, are the lowest possible. They were the bottom of the employment pyramid, so to speak. They would be paid the lowest wages possible. So here it speaks to us a little bit of the generousness of the father. Because what does the son say? How many of the day workers have more than enough to eat? Those day workers who work for my father, he's so generous that even they have more than enough to eat. So he says, how many of the day workers, the hired workers, have more than enough bread while I'm here perishing with hunger. So here's his plan. That's the third step in repentance. We must have a change of emotion. We must have a change of the mind. We must also have a change of the will. We must determine not only that we are sinful and that we're broken over our sinfulness, but that we're going to change it. Our will must be part of this idea of repentance in order for repentance to be complete. We need a plan. How are we going to stop sinning? What are we going to do? How are we going to stop looking at pornography? How are we going to stop cheating on our wives? How are we going to stop lying? How are we going to stop treating people the way we treat people? Repentance involves not only a change of the heart and a change of the mind, but a change of the will. And that's the part... Of repentance that I think is most often left out. We can be broken emotionally over our sin, realize our sinfulness, confess our sin, and yet never really have a real plan for how we're going to stop that particular behavior. But here's his plan. I will arise, I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Now, sinning against heaven is a polite way for Luke to say I've sinned against God. So he realizes his sin is not just, vert, not, not just horizontal to his father, but he's also sinned vertically against God. I've sinned against God and I've sinned before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There's humility. He's broken. He's humble. His emotions are broken. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, mm-hmm. let me work to pay off the debt that I owe. That's his plan. Now, Jesus' hearers are hearing this. And they're saying, oh, I see where Jesus is going. He's going to teach us about repentance. Because this is what repentance is. Repentance is paying back the debt you owe. And when it's paid back, then you can be received back. The younger son owes a debt to the father and to the family. This is his best solution for how can I repay that, and upon repaying it, I can be received back. I'm not worthy to be called your son, but when I repay this debt back, then I can be received. And Jesus' hearers are thinking, okay, a lesson about true, genuine repentance. Okay, we were really down on the younger son. He was foolish. He was an idiot. The father was foolish too, but now we're seeing Jesus is going to teach us and show us About genuine repentance, okay? Let the son come back, let him work. When the debt is paid, the father can, at that point, decide whether or not he'll receive him back. But Jesus, of course, has more surprises. So verse 20, so he arose, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Pause right there. And let me kind of set verse 20 up. Remember we said that when the son shamed the father, he didn't just shame the father, he shamed the whole village. So when the son returns to the village, not only does he have to worry about the wrath of the father and the wrath of maybe the elder brother, he has to worry about the wrath of the village. And so what do you think is in store for the younger brother as the villagers see him return, he's going to get that thrashing that he should have gotten before. So the father sees him a long way off. That's, that speaks to us, first of all, that the father was, of course, watching for him, eager to see him return. But he has compassion on him. Why does he have compassion? He Maybe he can see... He doesn't look so good. He's wearing some ragged clothes. Maybe he can see that he's a long way off. But he can't see the ribs sticking out. He can't see the sunken in cheeks. He can't see that this younger son has been through hell. But he has compassion over what the son is about to experience. The wrath of the village. Why does he run to it? to beat the villagers there. So the father runs now for a man of position to run in ancient Israel was disgraceful. People of position didn't run. Men of position didn't run. And the reason they didn't run was because if you were a person of status, then you wore a robe and the robe goes to the ground and it covers your legs and your ankles. And in that culture, to see the legs and see the ankles was a sign of shame. In fact, the word, the Hebrew word for robe, literally means that which brings me honor. Because that's it was honoring to cover your shamefulness. So to run, you sort of had to pick up your robes, and everybody would see your legs flailing around. They'd see this man of status running. That was a tremendously shameful thing. You remember... In Exodus, when God is prescribing how the altars were to be built, and he says, don't build my altars like the pagan altars. They build theirs up high where when the priest walks up, you see his ankles. Don't build mine like that because it's shameful to see the ankles. So here the father hikes up his robe, that which brings him honor, and he runs. In other words, he accepts shame in order to prevent his son experiencing shame. He runs to beat the villagers to his son so that he can then embrace him and kiss him and be fully reconciled before the son comes through the village. That's the compassion that the father has on the son. He is willing to bring shame upon himself rather than to see his son suffer shame in his return to him. So he ran. He embraced him. He kissed him. He hadn't had a bath yet. He embraced him. He kissed him. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't finish. The part he leaves out is the works part. Treat me as a hired servant. That's left out because there's no works that are needed. The reconciliation is full and complete. There's no work to be done. They are fully reconciled to one another. So then the Father says to His servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Now we know all the connotations for robe in the Scripture, the robe of Christ and His righteousness that covers us. The, the Father says, Bring the best robe. Who's, who, who would own the best robe in the, in the house? It'd be the father's robe, right? They they weren't a robe store. They didn't have robes laying around that didn't belong to anybody. Every robe in the house was somebody's robe. The best robe would be his. Bring mine. Everything that's mine is yours. Bring my robe. Cover him with that which gives me honor. Cover him with my robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. The ring would have been a signet ring. may you familiar with that? The idea was that it had this family engraving on it and you could stamp into a wax seal or different things and that carried the authority of the family. Bring my ring and put it on it. In other words, immediately he has the full authority of the family. Immediately he can go down to the city gate and conduct whatever family business that I could conduct because he has the ring. There's no waiting period. Just, just like when we enter the family of God, there's no waiting period. We immediately have, have all the authority of a co-heir, a joint heir with Christ. We, do, we don't wait and one day we become a full-fledged member of the family. We're given the full family uh, heirship immediately. Just as the son is given the ring right away. So not only does it signify the authority of the family, it also signifies the identity of the family. The father is now identified by the Son. He has the ring. If you see the ring, then you see the Father. In the same way, so also with us. We, upon entrance into the family of God, upon repentance and conversion, we are fully identified with Jesus Christ as well. So put the ring on His hand and shoes on His feet. Only the owner would wear shoes. Uh, Servants would not wear shoes. Put shoes on His feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. In Jesus' culture, eating meat was a rare thing. They did it occasionally. Certainly, not every meal, not even every day. But beyond even that, they would sometimes, you know, they'd eat goat or lamb. But to eat a fattened calf was a tremendously rare occurrence. It was something that was very, very special, save for special occasions. Now, the fattened calf It would feed more than the family. It would feed a calf, can can produce uh, up to maybe 200 pounds of meat. Meat can't be preserved, it's got to be eaten that day. So, this was a village affair. The whole village was going to be invited to come and celebrate, eat the fattened calf. For this, my son, was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. When the son left, he was given a funeral. He was dead. Um, Now he is alive and fully part of the family, fully accepted and celebrated. So, a couple of takeaways. Remembering, of course, that the younger son leads us into the older son. The younger son sets the stage for the elder son. But the younger son does teach us some valuable things about Jesus. God. Namely, I think, the eagerness of God to receive repentance sins. The loving kindness of God as He knows no limit to how far He will go to bring about repentance. Um, the watching Father, the waiting Father, the loving Father who endures shame and disgrace. Who sees his love rejected and yet never withdraws his own love and then eagerly receives, fully receives the repentant son that comes back. We see all of that. We also see, I think, some helpful things that remind us uh, of what the first two parables also taught us. The joy that God feels and those who are with God upon a repentant sinner. How many repentant sinners? Just one. So, in heaven, in the presence of God, I don't think that we in our minds, should visualize the God and His angels and those who are with God looking down upon this world and thinking, oh, just, there's just so much evil and if we could just fix that and fix that and if, if, if the revival would happen, wow, then that would be a good thing. Instead, we see repeatedly this picture of God and those who are with God being overjoyed over one repentant sinner. Which means, of course, that there is continual joy in heaven. Certainly, continual joy over just being in the presence of of God and being rid of sin, being in His presence to worship Him. But added to that, the continual joy of repentant sinners that can bring some peace to our hearts, particularly if, like most of us, if you have loved ones that you have reason to believe are in the presence of God now. It brings us some peace and some comfort and some, and some joy to our hearts to realize just what joy must they be experiencing now over each one repentant sinner. That's a takeaway. And then the last takeaway I have for us Is just just a reflective question to ask ourselves. Are we doing our part as the Garden Fellowship, as as individuals in, in Christ, as the body of Christ? Are we doing our part to bring joy to the heart of God and to the heart of those who are with God?
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast and message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.